Well, good afternoon and welcome to our UK column audience, wherever you are in the world. I'm going to say we've got a really special interview this afternoon. I'm going to be talking to a gentleman called Greg Hopkinson. I've put my glasses on because I need to read his email as it came in to me at the UK column. I think the audience will find it absolutely fascinating to see how people approach us and, and how this leads through to some really interesting um, follow-up. So let's go straight into this. So it was Sunday, the 8th of July, actually. Surprising how the time's gone there. And it was from Greg Hopkinson. And he said this. Good afternoon, Brian. Read your comments on medical professionals supporting your vaccine issues. Here is one professional working in isolation against them. Me. That's dot dot me. I am a retired vascular surgeon and one time chairman of the Drug and Therapeutics Committee at one of the country's biggest hospitals, the Royal Stoke at Stoke-on-Trent. I've contacted my MP, Sir William Cash, on many occasions in the last 18 months with particular concern regarding the vaccine rollout. I have had no satisfactory answer to my concerns. I also contacted Radio Stoke a BBC station back in December 2020, expressing my vaccine concerns in a live phone-in. I was cut short and a tape of June Rain played telling us how safe and effective the vaccine was. I have emailed June Rain with my concerns, no reply. I have also contacted my local GP regarding his mask mandate. My wife cannot bear cannot wear one and she is not allowed in the surgery under any circumstances. And he told me my information was flawed. In my view, the medical profession's gullibility and stupidity have enabled this crime. Brian, you and your team are doing a great job and I take pleasure in continuing to support you. I doubt that I could add much to your discussions, but if you think I can, please get back to me and I don't mind being interviewed if that may be of help. Best wishes, Greg Hopkinson, MBCHB, MD, FRCS. Well, that was a, a truly wonderful email into the UK column from a professional. So we're delighted today to have Greg with us in the studio. Let's meet him in person. Greg, thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure. Well, I'm going to, to ask one question before we kick off into the medical side, and that is, how did you find the UK column? How did you discover us? Well, so over two years ago, I was in YouTube land, just looking up things on vaccine and lockdowns and things like that. And somebody referred to UK column in a comment. I have no idea which website it was. It, it just might have been the Daily Telegraph, but I'm not sure. I'm unsubscribed now, by the way. And uh, so it was probably from then. It was from a comment and a link from a comment. And that's how I found you. Right. Excellent. And as you say, you, you've supported us since then, which is very kind yes. of you. Thank you for that. And the fact that you are, I'm going to say, brave enough to step forward and say, well, I'm prepared to talk on camera. This is really wonderful for us. We are I'm going to say this year, we are very encouraged by the number of professional people that have come forward to the column uh, because people who are fighting and they're trying to do the right things, that, that's all well and good. But we've always felt that we needed to be able to make direct contact with the professions because, of course, many professional people can be extremely powerful at... Um, getting the right message across and even winning over other professionals to see what is really happening. So um, I'd just say to you again, thank you very much for doing that. Just tell us a little bit about your professional background. We've obviously had a little snippet in the email, but tell us about your, your background as a surgeon. Yes, I, I qualified in the 70s and uh... We did general training in those days, and then you later take a specialty. So technically, I'm a general and vascular surgeon, retired. And uh, vascular is more of a single specialty now than it was. But it, we all started off really as general surgeons and then specialised 
then I've been I've been about forty years in the health service, Manchester, London, Birmingham. And I spent some time uh, doing research in New York as well. So that's my background, really. I've done other things. I've been a tutor for the College of Surgeons, been examiner for the College of Surgeons of uh, of Glasgow, and I've, I've done other things like that. And I was clinical director at Stoke as well. Okay, and what what about the position of uh, chairman of the Drug and Therapeutics Committee? What what sort of responsibilities? What was your involvement with that? That that's easy. Safety, efficacy, and price in that order. If a drug wasn't safe, we wouldn't recommend it. We're recommending drugs for our pharmacy in the hospital. And as I said, it's a very big hospital. So the first thing is it's safe. If it's not safe, that's the end of the discussion. Efficacy, you know, if it's safe, how efficacious is it? Well, if it's just partly efficacious, but it's quite safe, it's worth considering. And price, well, if if we really need it, we would look at price, but price was important, I have to say. But it was essentially safety and efficacy. Right. I, I, I would have lots of questions, actually, about that role and where it leads uh, leads to, but I think we'll save that for a little bit later. Um, when Can I ask when you actually left that position? Because I'm curious to get a feel for, um, you, you've stated those, um, uh, what, what are their goals, quite clearly, yeah. as to what you expected, and you're talking about safety. Um, so when, when did you actually leave that role? Um. You see, you can't remember exactly. 2008, 2010, okay. something like that. Right. But what, what this does for me is it puts down a little marker that we can go back to 2008 at least. And professionals such as yourself were directly concerned with the safety of pharmaceutical products. Because I yes. think in our, in our discussion that's coming up, we're going to end up talking about the safety aspects and how the MHRA doesn't does not engage on that. Um, but it's interesting to note that for you as a professional, if we go back in time, clearly professionals were concerned about pharmaceutical safety. Yes, our whole committee was medical. Right. There were no administrative people who could influence us at all. Yeah, very interesting. Okay. Well, great. Thank you very much for that. So well, let's start off with, with really what you had to say in, in the email itself, that you've become very, from your specialist medical area, you've, you've now become very concerned about what's happening around vaccines. So tell us about what, what's come to your attention and why you've now got concerns about the, the government's vaccination policy. Well, to go back to, say, February, March 2020, I bought it all, like a lot of us did. I, I believed everything the government said. And then the cracks started appearing. With, with, I was saying, hang on, that can't be right. We had the lockdown, but the airports were largely left open. I thought, hang on, this doesn't, I didn't mind being locked down for two weeks, three weeks. Fine. No, don't mind that. Two years, three years, that's different. A couple of weeks, I didn't mind that at all. And I thought, why haven't they closed the airports? Then the, the, the vaccine talk started and they were saying, oh, we'll soon have a vaccine. We'll soon have a vaccine. I thought, how can they be talking about a vaccine? It takes five to 10 years to get a safe vaccine. You cannot do it, not safely. And my view is they haven't done it safely. They must have cut corners. I don't know what they've done. But in my view, there, there's no long-term follow-up. They didn't have pregnant people. I don't think they had a People, I'm sorry, I didn't. I should have said women, shouldn't I? I do apologise. And uh, and th th there weren't proper investigations as to childhood or other illnesses. And the initial, certainly the Pfizer documents were kept fairly secret. And so that was my concern. How can we be rolling out a vaccine when there's no long-term follow-up? There's no real proper data. Then we later learned that the control group had been scrapped. And I was horrified, absolutely horrified. Where's the science gone? Where is the science gone? We, we all depend on science and it just wasn't visible. Right. And so you were feeling this. Um, did you have the opportunity to talk to any other medically qualified colleagues about it or other retired colleagues even? 
yes, I did. And uh, they didn't see my point of view at all. Right. I was very, very despondent about it. And uh, people who I'd always regarded as intelligence, even family members, um, just thought I was talking nonsense. This, this is very interesting because we've all experienced this, this sort of response. Uh, for, for me, I've tried talking to uh, retired military people, people that I valued as friends and in some instances, or, or at least very professional measured people in other instances. And yes, I've, I've been stonewalled. Um, and it, it's a puzzling because you say, well, hang on a minute, you've got the same sort of brain that I have. Why yes. is it I... Why is it I seem to be seeing something different? So yep. that presumably that left you sitting at home wondering. What, what did you do then? Well, I, I did these. I, I would speak to people, you know, in the village here, or you know, relatives or friends, and just basically got rebuffed. And then come December, when they were talking about the actual rollout of the vaccine, I thought I've got to do something more than that. And that's when I phoned up our local radio station, Radio Stoke, who I had appeared on before some years back. I'd also been on on, uh, on BBC television at the same time over a, a staffing issue at the hospital. So I so I knew a couple of the people there, and uh, I won't mention the chap's name I spoke to, but you know I, I got on the live phone in. And they had me and a virologist. Then they had, later had a, an, another lady from the community. But I, I made a point about, hang on, how, how can we know about these vaccines at this stage? And then the next thing is they had a, a virologist from Keele University talking. And she said, well, yes, the trials haven't really been that big so far, have they? And then her voice faded. I think they might have pulled the fader on her. Then I was silent. I'd be, I was shut off. Right. I had no reply. Right. This this well, I, I could say it's incredible, but of course it's not because it's it's obvious that there has been um gagging on the uh mainstream media, particularly the uh the BBC and the newspapers, to stop them reporting anything other than the government's line. I'm actually waiting for I think we might have part of it now, but a gentleman told me a couple of weeks ago that he had actually seen the document which had been sent to the media informing them more or less what they could and could not say about issues to do with COVID-19 and vaccinations. And uh, he he's an experienced individual, worked at high level inside uh, TV media. And he said that the document made it very clear or, or no, let's do it the other way around, that the media professionals reading the document would have understood very clearly that, uh, that it, the veiled threat was if you didn't follow the government reporting line, you were going to have your um, license withdrawn or some form of, of, of stamp put on the license conditions. So he said it was particularly onerous and he was not at all surprised that there was no reporting because he said the government's effectively shut it down. It's like Russia, isn't it? Well, absolutely. In fact, in fact it might, we might be better off than, who knows? Yeah, but like Russia. Yes, it, it's a pretty incredible statement. Um, now, this is a question which, which I'd like to ask because it, it just gives me some feel for how it works in your profession. But you you... You were previously a vascular surgeon. Um, you are now having a sense of unease about vaccinations and you're moving in to comment on an area which involves virology. Correct me if I get any of these terms wrong. Um, I know. Is, is it a particular problem for uh, somebody who's specialised in one area of medicine to talk about matters to do with viruses and vaccines? Yeah, that's a good question. I have no specialist knowledge about virology apart from what I learned as, a, as an undergraduate and then with my reading the last two years. I have extensive knowledge of bacteria because I've had to deal with them in, in, a, in clinical situations all of my working life. And so, that, so any knowledge I do have is more about bacteria because you can see them, you can grow them, you can see them cause disease, you can take bacteria from a wound and you can grow it. 
and you can get sensitivities for antibiotics. So it's a much clearer picture. The virology picture, and I've, I've researched this a lot, particularly the last 12 months, is not so clear and not so easy to understand. And there seems to be um, uh, a poor foundation to the whole subject, if I could put it that way. And I'm not a denier, far from it. I'm not a COVID denier. And I, I, as I said, I believed it all to start with. Whether they can prove that COVID is due to virus, I don't know. It might be, but we know that viruses are very small, about 100 nanometers across. That's about 100 billionths of a meter. So this mask mandate, you know, they'll just go fly straight through a mask. You know, it, it's just been nonsense. And that's been another, another thing which has sort of a undermined my view of things because we're being told to do these things like social distancing of six feet. Well, there's no evidence for that. Viruses are spread by aerosol and they can go 30, 40, 50 feet. So a couple of yards is neither here nor there. And when I was training, we were always told that it wasn't usually the virus was the main problem. It was the secondary bacterial infection. Now, I'm talking from a surgical perspective. I'm not talking from a, a respiratory perspective, but that, that's how we had it. The, the, the virus weakens you, and then the bacteria come in. And whether, you know, I've started doubting so much of my training, I've had to tell you this last two years, and you start wondering about what you've been told, which was right and which was wrong. But I know that what I did, my job, I knew about that. I knew exactly what I was doing. And I had great confidence in, my, in the team. And uh, the, the virology side of things, no, I'm not an expert, but I have my suspicions about it. Right. And also, of course, you're making, a, you're making your own judgment based on the fact that Clearly, you're a man of intelligence and you've got common sense and you're professionally trained in medicine. So that's that's a very strong baseline um, for commenting. Of course, the government would have us believe that the only people we should pay any attention to are the government selected specialists in virology. So this is a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? The government saying trust yes. us and it puts its own people forward, even when the average person um, who does the research can see that their so-called evidence-based is flawed, if not completely wrong in some circumstances. But that's interesting. So your concerns started around the, the COVID pandemic and the response to it. And then as time moved on, obviously, the next thing to emerge was the vaccination program. And I, uh, if, I've, if I've got this right, that was the point at which concern, your concern started to increase. Yes, very, very much so, because, you know, a bit of lockdown for a few weeks isn't going to hurt many people. But the whole narrative started to fall apart during that talk about bringing the vaccine in, because we knew that the virus, if it is a virus, let's say it is, that the virus is, only tends to affect older people people my age and people older than me. And we know this, that that cruise ship, the Diamond Princess, was, uh, was moored in Yokohama. They had all the figures from that. They had about 3,500 people on board, in, including the crew. And their reports vary, but there were probably at most 13 deaths. And apparently all were over 70, apart from one who was over 60. So this has not been a disease of middle-aged or young people. Hence my concern about the child vaccination programme. This disease does not affect them to any extent at all. The vaccine is more dangerous to children, in my view, than COVID is. Much more dangerous. Right. And, and I know that you are absolutely not alone in saying that. There are many other professionals who are saying that. And we, we the UK column, are going to try as hard as we possibly can to uh, bring bring those people together because I think there's strength in numbers when it comes to speaking out about uh, what what the real evidence is. So let's delve into the vaccination program then. Um, did you have any concerns at all about vaccinations for adults, or you were happy? You were. Oh happy no, I'm, I'm not. At no, I, I'm not. I'm, uh, if we talk about COVID, vaccination across the board, I have no problem with vaccinations. I've had lots over my life. It's this particular vaccine. Did I have concerns about adults? Um, 
Well, yes, in as much it was a, a it was a don't know. So yes, I did have concerns, and we weren't aware of some of the early Pfizer results like we are now. And we now know that bad things happen during the Pfizer trials, which we were not party to. And the MHRA, in their wisdom, apparently, apparently, did not even look at the Pfizer data. I saw them interviewed a year last December. Said, "Oh no, Pfizer gave us all the data." No, we didn't go through it. And that was why I wrote to June Rain, who is the head of the MHRA, of course. And what what's so concerning is the MHRA is partly funded by these drug companies who are making an awful lot of money out of the out of the vaccine. But I'm not so much bothered about the the, the money. That, that money's gone now and that we'll never see that again. It's the, the damage which it has caused already and the potential for further damage. And the more people we vaccinate, the higher is the likelihood of more people being hurt. You know, we now know about myocarditis, perigarditis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, transverse myelitis, renal failure, hip you know, we know, we know all of these things which can happen. And we know that it's happened an awful lot more than it should have done, in my estimation. This vaccine has done more damage, from what I can glean from looking at all the data, than most of the other vaccines we've ever had over the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah. Now, this is a very scary situation. And and it's going on, Brian. It is still going on. You know, the people are still going up to these vaccination centres and, you know, volunteering themselves for it. And, uh, you know, they've been scared into it, haven't they? The campaign of fear in 2020 was brilliantly, brilliantly orchestrated. And I think they they frightened the patients. And I think they frightened the GPs. And I think they frightened the nurses. And, you know, the GPs were left with the, the patients on one side. Give me the vaccine. Give me the vaccine. And then on their side, oh, if I don't have it, I'm going to get ill or I'm going to give it to my patient. And then we had this terrible terrible psychological thing about your grandchild might kill you. I mean, it's been appalling, Brian, appalling. Well, uh, I, I think that's that's the right uh, descriptor for it, uh, utterly appalling. I often, I'm increasingly using the word malicious because what I am sure of is that the whole policy is calculated. It's not something that's that's failing by incompetence. We have a malicious policy unleashed in order to get these vaccinations yep. into people. But you, you, you've you said that in principle, you're not anti-vaccine. And indeed, no. many of the medical professionals we, we have been speaking to over the years will often say that, but you focused in on this vaccine. So what is it about this vaccine that really caught your attention? I know you've sort of talked about the trials, but what was it that yep. made you think there's something different about this vaccine. Well, um, I, the mRNA, mRNA side of things has never been done before. And by traditional definitions, this is not a vaccine. It is now because they changed the definition. But three years ago, this would not have been considered a vaccine. It's like the definition of pandemic. They said we had a pandemic in 2020. Well, no, we didn't. We did by the new definition, but not by the old definition. By the old definition, there had to be serious extra loss of life in multiple countries. And that just didn't happen. Was the death rate up a bit? Yes, it was at times. It is with the flu virus, and and it is. But we were completely scared into believing there was a pandemic. And I still do not believe there was a pandemic. There was an epidemic in, in the, the March, April, like we have many times in the, the spring or the early winter or the winter, like a flu epidemic. But to my, to, my, to my original definition, when I went to medical school, there was no pandemic. So yeah. back to your question, mRNA, who knows? Robert Malone, the designer of the technique, is strongly against it being used in a vaccination program. He's got some wonderful work on the internet, which anybody can access and uh, he, he is strongly against. He's a very clever man. And Mike Eden as well, you'll, you'll know these people. But, you know, but Robert Malone designed the technique and he says it should not be used for a vaccine at this time. They cut corners, he said. They cut corners. Well, that you know, these people's lives we're playing with here. Uh, absolutely. Well, of course, one thing that has been said across the whole programme, but 
which is very important, but a lot of people didn't pick up on, is the fact that this is experimental medication. Yes. We're dealing with black triangle medication under the yes. MHRA's uh, designation. Um, and therefore, one would have thought that organisations responsible for safety, like the MHRA, would have been particularly interested in, um, one, what the... Uh, the pre-vaccination trials had shown, but also to be carefully monitoring the results of the um, adverse effects that were recorded uh, after the trial, after the vaccine program had yes. started to roll out. But for everything we've we've seen and discovered, this is absolutely not the case. We still can't see any evidence to show that the MHRA has conducted any form of investigation risk analysis into its own yellow card vaccine adverse reaction data. They yes. talk about it, but they don't demonstrate that they've considered risk. Yes, I mean, the, the, the American, uh, the, the VAERS, the V-A-E-R-S system seems to be more thorough than ours, and that's not particularly good. But at least they give ages and they, they, they you can get more detail from it. And there has been some... Um, rather concerning data which people have looked at regarding different batches of vaccine. And I, I, I've seen bits about that and I don't know the truth or otherwise, but it did strike me that it is possible that some of the back, vaccine batches um, had different effects from others. Now, is that, if that's a manufacturing problem, uh, we don't know, but that's a huge concern. And, you know, people keep dying People keep getting paralysed, and and we're carrying on with with this. You know, in America, what are there thirty thousand deaths they know about? In this country, well, the, the reports in this country seem to have dried up, don't they? You were recording them brilliantly, and then all of a sudden, it seems to have. Uh, are they going down a black hole somewhere? Uh, well, I, I respond to that straight away, Greg, and and that's exactly what's happening because we've had a number of people contact us saying oh, the yellow card data on the UK column website hasn't been updated, to which no. our answer is, no, it hasn't. And that's because the MHRA has not updated its data. So from the weekly reports, uh, the MHRA has now drifted into monthly reports. And we're pretty confident that fairly shortly there will be no more uh, MHRA yellow card reports. They will have literally disappeared into a black hole yes um, my, my my mind says this is to cover you know this is covering the trail this is removing evidence yes it's it's very worrying because your, your website which is excellent on it i've been on the mhr i used to look at the mhra website itself to start with but as you've said yourself it's not that clear you've got to keep scrolling down through all these different things at least now you know, I clicked on one of your reports um, oh, some months ago, and it was, it was Pfizer or AstraZeneca, I'm not sure, and I clicked on blindness. And, and then I got to the total of people with blindness at the end of the reports, and it was over 400, 400 people blinded, over 400 people deafened, loads of people with balance problems and just little niggly things like that, which, of course, you know, if you're driving a car or if you're fly, flying an aeroplane, I mean, how many pilots have been vaccinated, I wonder? It worries me. It really worries me, that does. And, uh, you, you know, we keep hearing sort of tales of people collapsing. The, the internet is full of people just falling down. Young people, old people, sports stars collapsing on the, in the, on the basketball pitch, on the football pitch. There was a, a young lady, um, rugby player, I think she was 26, died a month or two ago. Well, individually, on on there, the, the, individually, it's a it's a tragedy. Of course, it is, but, but if it's being caused by a drug, well, that is just breathtaking. You know, it, we've all lost people, and uh, you know, relatives, friends, and uh, and and so on. But if this has been caused by something, and it really is looking that way, this program should be stopped. This this is where it gets very very interesting. Um, Greg, because um, with with other medication, the MHRA has acted quite quickly. In fact, is still talking about problems with other medications. Sodium valparate 
epilim is one of the ones that comes to my mind easily. Now, I am told, and I believe this figure is absolutely correct, that some 37,500 children have been adversely affected by sodium valparate. And the whilst the MHRA is not acknowledging that sort of figure, and I'm going to state again, I believe that is the correct figure, they are at least acknowledging problems with sodium valparate. And in the background, the MHRA is still appearing to show concern about that medication and other medications. But with the vaccines, it's like they've turned a blind eye or they can't see their own data. Now, you said in the email to, to the UK column that you'd attempted to speak to June Rain and you would be doing that in your sorry, with the um, with the baseline that you're, you're a former vascular surgeon. You've worked, as you've just told us, on a, a committee involved in the safety of pharmaceutical products. What did you say? What did you ask June Rain? And what was the response? I didn't get I didn't get a response. But what I asked her, I mean, I can I can send you copies of the, the emails if you require. But I just said, look, hang on. You, you don't know that this is safe yet. It might be safe. It might not. We didn't know. We hadn't seen any of the studies. You have to see the studies before you can say yes or no. And the, the, the one person from the MHRA that I saw, uh, a spokesperson, said that they hadn't actually looked through the studies. They'd just taken the, the, the drug company's words for it. And you, know, and you see other people saying that the, the vaccines are 100% safe. Nothing's 100% safe. Nothing is 100% safe. And they, I saw somebody on one of these ITV-type programs quoted a, a month or so ago. I mean, I have to say I barely watched the the old media anymore. I've just completely lost faith in them. But that's that's another thing. But there was this little girl on there. I don't know how old she was. And she was saying that the, the vaccines were 100% effective. And you think, what planet are these people on? Where, where you know, who, who is who is telling them the, these stories, these fairy tales? Right. So so you, you challenged June Rain as a professional, yeah. well, a former yeah, professional. No. And, and did, did you just get a non-committal reply or no reply at all? Nothing. Nothing. Right. This, no acknowledgement. This is very interesting because um, I'm going to say UK Column seems to have been quite successful at getting replies, um, albeit that the majority of those replies are placitudes and fob-offs, um, but at least we've, fought, uh, we've forced them into replying. Um, but for the, for the audience, I'm going to say the key bit which UK Column is pointing to at the moment is, is that we're watching the MHRA's own board meeting videos very carefully because, of course, right. if you watch those board meetings, you can hear what, what comes out of their own mouths. Um, there was one uh, recording of uh, June Rain where she was giving a talk where she was saying, oh, well, we expected about 100,000 uh, either adverse reactions or cases, but in fact, it was then up to 400 plus, 400,000 plus cases. And you would have thought that that itself would have been enough to have triggered the MHRA putting a, putting a marker up or stopping things until there'd been a, a safety investigation. But even with June Rain admitting that they had been surprised by the number of adverse reactions, the, the vaccine program just continued unabated. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really concerning. One of the big problems for me with, it, with the vaccination programme is this problem of consent. I'm, I know quite a few people who've been vaccinated. My first question is, were you told the complications? And they said, oh, I was given a leaflet afterwards with potential complications like, you know, sore arm, that sort of thing. Were you told that there might be these other more serious ones? No. They haven't given full consent. And as you mentioned earlier, this is an experimental drug. It's not an accepted one. So the usual rules don't go about consent because the consent should, should be to enter into a trial, not yes or no for the vaccine. You should be consenting to enter the trial. 
and then theoretically you'd, you'd be blinded, half would be blinded and half wouldn't. So right from start to finish, every every safety feature is being moved out of the way and nobody that I know has given informed consent. And that's a legal requirement. That's like a Nuremberg code things. I have done tens of thousands of operations in my career. I have never done one without giving informed consent. Benefits, like side effects, you know, it depends what he was doing, and you know, and things which might happen to you, you know. And the only time I've not had consent is if somebody hasn't been able to give it, and you know, they've been unconscious. Yes, but otherwise, no. Well, this 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 is a, a very very important thing, and I I can I can give a a good personal example of this. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had to have a an operation done on one of my eyes. And the surgeon said to me, you know, we've got a 90, I think he said 94% success rate with this. But I have to tell you, for a very small number of people, there can be complications where you might end up with eyesight worse, or you could lose your sight. And that really made me think. So I'm yes. sat there with the, with the uh, eye surgeon, and that's what he said to me. And then I looked in his eyes and thought, do I trust this man or not? And I decided I trusted him. And ultimately, I had a very successful operation and my eyesight is, is fine. Um, but he was good enough. He did the right professional thing. He told me what the risks were, and I appreciated that. But I went into that operation fully informed. If anything had gone wrong, I couldn't have turned around and accused him of failing to do what was necessary. But now, now we've got to the stage, excuse me, where people are just simply not um, being told what the risks are. And it is not simply that they might feel a bit poorly or have a sore arm. Uh, you've mentioned uh, some of the, the really serious uh, neurological um, adverse reactions, which, of course, are life changing for people that have now got partial paralysis or uh, myocarditis, whatever it is. Um, why, why do you think they failed to tell people what the potential risks were? I think that, I mean, obviously, I'm just guessing, but an informed guess would be that a lot of people would turn it down. And for whatever reason, they didn't want people to turn it down. So you then say, why didn't they want to, to turn it down? Because they want them to have it. Or why do they want them to have it? And my next question is, what's in it? Because we don't know exactly what's in these vaccines. We do know they cause harm. We, they don't prevent transmission. You know, they, 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 all these things they said they did, and they don't. It's, it's quite clear now. So what is, what is it about the vaccine? They want so many people to, to, to have it. Again, that, that's, that, that's a, a rather black thought, quite honestly. Uh, yes, I, I'm going to quote, quote Debbie Evans in response to this, because uh, one of the things she's often said is just imagine going into a restaurant and there's a whole series of uh, dishes on the menu and you're reading through and you realise that two of them are in a foreign language and you have no idea what the dish is. And so you ask the staff what the dish is and what's in it. You would be very unlikely to eat it if you had no idea what was in it. Um, but here we are being offered a drug, a vaccine in this case, which people have no idea what's in it and they have no idea what risks are. But the government has run a very cunning applied psychology plan to deceive people, encourage people, mislead people into having the, the vaccine. This is a a very dark agenda by a government, certainly by um, a Department of Health, because it demonstrates that Department of Health hasn't got people's best interests at heart. Yes, completely. And the thing about the vaccine is you can't get rid of it. You know, it, it, the way it's been given has been appalling. If, when you do an injection onto somebody, you should always aspirate, pull the syringe back to make sure you're not in the blood vessel absolutely standard i've watched any number of these these quickly trained people on television shoving it in and pushing the plunger well you can't do that with any safety 
You really can't. And, you know, you can't get out. If you have a hip replacement and it breaks or it gets infected, you can have it removed, clear up the infection, have another one. We can't do that with the vaccines because it's in your arm. It's possibly in your liver, your, 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 your spleen, your testicles, your ovaries, your brain. No, you know, it varies from person to person, but this is not a, a, a this is a really concerning situation. Thank, thank you for that. What's just come into my head is as you're talking through the these uh, problems, have you and and you've already told us that you found it difficult to engage with other medical colleagues on the subject. Have you now been able to watch other medical professionals? Uh, talking about these subjects, talking about the same concerns that you have. Just just as an example, UK Column has run the Doctors for COVID Ethics series, where there's been a number of, of different medically qualified people from different countries speaking out. We've, we've also had the French doctors speaking out. We've also done the interview with Professor Christian Perron, who was head of the uh, of the whole of the French vaccination um, pr a program in in years gone by, so he was he was very senior. He said it was madness. But have you been able to see some of these uh, other people talking? And if you have, what have you felt about the way they've been expressing concerns? Well, they they felt exactly the same as I have. The last one I watched was the, the paediatrician lady. I've just, I'm sorry, I've just forgotten her name. She was on a week or two ago. And um, I think Debbie was uh, interviewing her. And oh, she well, was saying exactly yeah. the same. Sorry? Yeah, that was Ross, Dr. Ross Jones, I think it that was. Well, yes, it was. That, that's the yeah. lady. And I thought she spoke really, really well and very, very passionately about it. And I agreed 100% with everything she said. And some of the other people we've had on, those are... The lady, the French lady, Christine. Christine um, uh, uh, um, Cotton. Christine Cotton. Christine. Christine Cotton. Yeah, I thought she was excellent as well, talking about all the shortcuts which had been made when they were licensing the the vaccine, and uh, I thought that was really interesting. You had some great diagrams showing about all these stages have been missed out, and that's how they've done it so quickly. And I mean, it's quite horrifying, really. Yes, and. Now that you've said that, perhaps we can see the problem for the BBC and other state-controlled media if significant groups of professionals, ex-professionals, were allowed to give their opinion to the newspapers. Um, what, what the public would then be able to see is that, you know, what the government is saying about the safety of vaccines is by no means certain because we have hundreds, thousands of other professionals challenging what the government's preferred um, scientific advisors are saying. We would be getting some of the truth across. Yes, I think uh, it, it's obviously a deliberate thing to keep us all quiet. The first thing with me, a year last December, it'll be two years this December, when I'd been reading stuff about the vaccines and thinking, hang on, this, is, this isn't the right time to bring it out. They need more testing. And I'd seen some of the... The, the ingredients which were discussed on that, I think it was the Pfizer vaccine, and one of the chemicals in it is polyethylene glycol, which they used to sort of to, to, to fix the vaccine together. And it's all about lipid nanoparticles and all this sort of thing. But anyhow, polyethylene glycol, well, that's antifreeze, and it's in tiny amounts, but occasionally you can get anaphylactic reactions to them, and they can be fatal. So why would anybody with that potential... So a risk like you can get anaphylaxis to many things, you know, like peanuts and everything. But if it's in a drug, people should really be warned about it beforehand. And the people who've given the injection should be there with the, the adrenaline and the hydrocortisone and, and all the things which you need to treat it. But they're not. A friend of my wife's who, who's an, an illustrator did a two-day training course and she's, she's been giving injections for covid I mean, this is just ridiculous. She's trained in art, and she's giving and she's giving these injections. It makes yeah. no sense at all. And a, a friend of ours um, went to the, the a local um, injection centre down at Barlaston, and they said, "Oh yeah, we we had somebody die here the other day. Well, they, they died in the car park." 
And she said, well, what did they die? I said, oh, we don't know. And this, this is the level of, of thinking. People don't seem able to put one and one together and say, look, he's had the injection and then he died. Did he die from it? Well, he might not have done. Of course he might not. That could have been his due time to go anyway. But, you know, that's, that's something, you know, if you're well into your 70s or your 80s, that's a good enough argument. But if, if, if you're 26, you know, and, uh, and, and you've, you've died like this poor rugby lady, it's awful. And, you right. know, there are, there are other things in the general news as well. You know, Djokovic, who's, you know, the tennis player, the fabulous tennis player, who has refused to be injected. He's being denied entry to several countries and to several tournaments, has been particularly the United States. And uh, Rafael Nadal, who was injected, has had to drop out of two tournaments running. Now, of course it might not be related, of course not, but it ought to make people think that the guy who hasn't been injected is fine. I haven't been injected. I'm fine. I expect you haven't, but, and, and, you know, and it, it isn't, COVID isn't the terrible thing for younger people. It wasn't for me as a, as a retired person. I believe I had it over two years ago, and I felt rough for a day in a sore throat, but I've had that before. I probably had that last year and 10 years ago and seven years ago. So, you know, there's Nadal and there's Djokovic, two examples of vaxxed and unvaxxed, and people don't seem to be able to draw the conclusion, which may be pertinent, it may not. It might, you know, Nadal's condition might be nothing to do with the vaccine, but people need to question it. Say, well, well, is it? Could it be? And you mentioned June Rain. She should be looking into all of these events. She should have a whole team looking into all these events, and it's not happening. No. We'll come back on to that. Uh, I, I want to move on to the children. But before I do yeah. that one, uh, one of the things that's become very obvious from talking to medical professionals who are still practicing is that they say the atmosphere now inside the NHS, even inside GPS practice, has become very um, oppressive that... Uh, it's clear that the only thing you're allowed to support is the government agenda. So the, the, the government COVID or vaccination agenda comes into the senior management of the hospitals and they're producing the local brochures and pamphlets and advisory guidance. And woe betide anybody who challenges this official line. Um, I know you're not practising uh, anymore, but... Is this something that you've also become aware of or heard other colleagues talking about it? Yes, I know people who, who still are practising. And uh, I was talking to one about six weeks ago and he was saying just how difficult it is for the staff at my old hospital that, you know, because obviously there are going to be lots of differences of opinions. But the, the managerialization of the health service, which started for, for me in the 80s, has been a progressive thing, and it's been like a cancer on the health service. Do you need good managers? Of course you can. We had, we had a, a lovely um, chief executive a few years ago, and uh, they were removed from their position because they cared about the patients. I've always presumed, and uh, I'm just I'm, I'm, you know that might not be the case. But we've always needed good managers, but there were hundreds of them, hundreds and hundreds, and. We'd say to each other, well, what do they do? What, what's their point? Well, we know now it's the top-down management system. So one person can control the whole hospital. You know, whereas before we had committees, we had consultants committees, nurses committees, pharmacy committees, you know, the, the, the porters would get together, the, every, you know, you know we, we all used to be like a big family in the, the original days. I'm sure Debbie will agree with me about that. We all worked for each other. And that, uh, from the, from the things I've heard, as before I retired, um, it's over five years now since I've been retired, and before I retired, it was all just getting a bit, you know, what was that about? And, you know, and why can't I do that? People who don't know, telling people who do know what to do, if, yeah. that's a, if, if that makes sense. Well, uh, it makes total sense to me. I, I'll share a little story, and that was, I'm not sure how long ago, but I'm going to say 10 or 12 years ago, I was talking uh, to a person that, had, uh, well, it was a lady who had uh, uh, had a whole career um, as a nurse and uh, 
uh, Ward sister, if uh, still in the days of the Ward sisters. Absolutely. Uh, so had had worked in I think virtually all of the uh, major hospitals in London, the big teaching hospitals, and then in their career they'd subsequently gone into the management system of the NHS and I, I it was a lovely sunny morning I was talking to this particular lady and I said how is the new job going because she'd moved into a, a new hospital and a new job and there was a pause and she said to me well Brian um, I think it's out of the frying pan into the fire and I said oh what's that and she said well we have meetings and meetings and meetings and strategy meetings and planning meetings. And she said, we're having more meetings than we are doing our basic job of caring for the patients. But worse than that, very often in the meeting, something will be suggested, which the experienced people will quickly say, well, no, 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 we don't want to do that. Because if you do that, X, Y and Z will happen and it will not be a good result. Well, what happened, she says, the management then decide to do that very thing. And then a few weeks or months later, all of the problems they were told would occur, happen. And then we run around like headless chickens trying to fix the, you know, the fallout. She said, she, the lady said to me, it's madness. And I looked at her and I said to her, what if it's not madness? What if it's good management? Yes, and she, and she looked at me in a very strange way and said, but they're destroying the hospital. And I said, yes, so you are assuming that uh, the management are there to run an efficient and effective healthcare system via the hospital. What if they're not? What if they're there to do something very different? And it went very quiet. And then the lady said to me, oh, my goodness that explains that and explains that and what she started then to talk about was all the situations she could recall where as a result of decisions made by the senior hospital management team things had got worse or fallen apart in the hospital so the moment i said if these people have an agenda to destroy the efficiency of the hospital is that why they're making these strange decisions? She, she got to that position. And I can also say that when this lady uh, was to try and speak up against some of these very strange policies, um, it was quickly suggested that perhaps she needed some holiday, perhaps she wasn't feeling too good. And ultimately, it was the classic uh, trick of we might, we think maybe you're a little bit anxious or depressed. So this was the mental health card was used on it. So I'm going to say from other channels, I've heard over many years some very, very suspect things going on inside the NHS system. Very much so. One of the things I noticed years ago, which has affected, it's very prevalent now, you've mentioned on your on your programme, the ambulance waits and people in ambulances for 20 hours or whatever. The number of beds in the health service has been progressively reduced, I think, since the 50s. I'm sure you, you, you'll probably have figures on it. I know there was a national beds inquiry when I was still working, and I remember looking at it, thinking, gosh, this isn't very good. And my last five years as a surgeon was a constant struggle to get patients in for an operation. And we ended up, we, we used to have them in the day before, and it gave everybody who needed to know about them, the anaesthetist, the junior staff, the nurse, everybody got to know them and you knew their requirements, then all of a sudden, no, you, you can't believe it. you've got to bring them in the same day, which made the, the start of the day very chaotic. And I got around this by having a, an assessment clinic. I opened an assessment clinic so I could see them the week before because it was an absolute nightmare trying to sort consent out, consent again, because it's really important to tell people the risks. Some of the procedures which I did were very high risk, you know, risk to your life. And, you know, you had to go through it in great detail with people. And uh, it, it was that was terribly important. And to put even to have somebody in for a smaller case, you know, and and try to explain it to them. You know, they got in at eight and the operating was started at nine. 
Well, what? And so you're all of a lather before you start the operating list. That's why I opened a, a, a clinic. Fortunately, they allowed me to open a clinic of assessment, which is very good. But, you know, on the consent thing, people are, are marvellous. Yeah. So they let's, are. with a little bit of uh, an eye on the clock now, let's come yeah. to the issue of the children, because this is a subject which you said you felt very strongly about, that now we see this uh, vaccination program being unleashed on the children. What What are your concerns with that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I want to end up mentioning the, the Royal College of Pediat Pediatrics. And I took some notes. In fact, I won't, I won't get the notes. The Royal Colleges have a lot of power and the General Medical Council has a lot of power. The Federation of Royal Colleges had said that people should be vaccinated. The uh, Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynaecology has said that pregnant women should be vaccinated. The Royal College of Paediatrics has said that children down to five should be vaccinated. They even give the dose on their website. Pfizer's 10 micrograms twice, 12-week interval. So they are completely on board, the, the, the paediatrics people. The GMC's job is to protect patients. It is to protect patients. Where are they? What are they doing? They're, they're telling surgeons. There is an article in Pulse. Um, I, I, I won't find it off my iPad, but they're saying doctors who refuse to be inoculated may be investigated by the General Medical Council. Mm -hmm. Well, this is unbelievable. And that's this year. That's not last year or, you know, summer 20. This is this year these things are coming out. It's in Pulse magazine, the GMC website, and the Royal College's website. They're all saying get vaccinated. So where the children are concerned, you know, there's some awful tales coming out from America. There's some harrowing um, things on, on some of the, the websites of parents who've uh, had very bad things happen to their children. And it's just heartrending to listen to them. So, you know, anybody who's watching this, please, please think really hard before giving consent to your child and ask for the safety and the efficacy of it beforehand. And could, could, could I see a consent form for it? I want to sign a consent form. And you, the person giving the injection, you are responsible. The GP, the nurse, the lady who's being trained off the street and, and coming... They, they, they put them up in tents in, uh, in, in Nantwich, north of me. And you think, what on earth is going on? Because it's the individual who is responsible for these injections. If, if I or you give somebody an injection, we are legally responsibility, responsible for it. Not Boris Johnson or Liz Truss or Ben Wallace. It is you or I. That's where the buck stops. And the Nuremberg Code is quite clear on this quite clear and it has been broken big time yes uh, now this is this is a very good tactic isn't it because it's simple it's something that's very easy it's very simple to do is to be uh, asking about the consent and and pointing out who who is responsible um we have been told on several occasions that when people have used this tactic the uh, the medical team have backtracked very quickly oh well if you don't want to have the vaccine, you, you can go away and have a think about it. So they've been yeah. very quick to push the people away. And all they've all those people have done is asked about the safety aspects of the vaccine and and, and pointed out that the people, the lady, as it was in several of the cases, giving the vaccine uh, was going to be personally uh, personally liable. Yeah, so I th oh, it, would stop it. it would stop it overnight, wouldn't it? Yes, I think if, so. If ever, if if everybody said, look, dear, I don't know what your training is, but if my child gets ill after you, I'm after you. Yes. I'm after you because you have hurt my child or you have killed my child. And I, I'm, and it's all right arguing facts and figures. You know, statistics are one thing. You know, it could be 60% or 20% or 99%. But if it's you, it's 100%. It's what I've always said to my patients. You know, it's all right looking, say, 99% of people do really well with this. Well, if you're the one, you're 100% bad. You're damaged or dead or crippled or what have you. It is the people giving the injections. They're, they're, 
it's a bit like the in a way, it sounds like exaggerating. It's a bit like the Third Reich, isn't it? Really, about these people doing things to people without consent. Only people are walking up for it. They're sort of saying, "All right, give give me the injection," because it's out of ignorance they're having the injection. It's because of the way it's it's been presented to them. Well, it's, and it's... I feel. I feel so sorry for a lot of people who've been vaccinated. I shouldn't use the word vaccinated, who've been injected because they, they've, they, you know, they're, they're they're decent people, and they've believed their doctor, and they've believed the government, and they've believed anything June Rain says, and they've believed what's on ITV, or they they've believed, you know, what's on Facebook, and it's an absolute crime which has happened. Mm. And the tragic thing for them is not only. Have they followed that advice and then they've had a vaccination? Many of them were, were jabbed in order, in their minds, to protect family members. So they weren't even yes. thinking about themselves in the first instance. No. They were thinking about elderly parents or relatives and they're vaccinated. They then suffer a horrific adverse reaction. So their life is completely changed, destroyed. And then they can't actually go anywhere to speak to anybody who acknowledges that they have been damaged by a vaccine. The, some of the GPs have responded very well to them. Others have simply blanked them. But of course, the, the, the mantra which the NHS seems to be just repeating is that it's, we don't accept that anybody's been damaged by the vaccine, so go away. So yes. they're left in a wilderness, which is tragic. Yep. Yeah. I have a, a, a acquaintance, he's a friend, he's a very nice, very nice chap. And uh, he was injected, I believe, some months ago. And he's played the guitar all his life. And he can no longer play the guitar. So he sold his guitars. And I remember thinking, well, and, and he says, I don't know what's caused it. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's got an appointment with a neurologist for 49 weeks' time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I. And so he, is, is it, the penny hasn't dropped with him. I'm not, I, I haven't got the heart to tell him that it might be a vaccine reaction because yeah. it, it might not. But, you know, it's all very coincidence again. Well, unfortunately, there's too many coincidences. And my, my personal little survey, which goes on a day to day basis, is I walk my dog twice a day and I meet uh, many people. And uh, I, I've met those people regularly over many years. Many of them are elderly people. They're retired. And um, I'm meeting more and more of them. They're not well. And I yes. say to them, have you had your vaccine? And they think this is a positive question. So they're always very keen to tell me they have. And then I say, well, when did you start to feel unwell? And they'll say, well, it wasn't long after I had my vaccination. But they don't put the two things together, and I'm I'm not going to put a, another problem in their heads. But that's that's just a little straw poll. Greg, I'm I'm going to say I think we're just about on the hour. It it's been it's been a really fascinating um, um, interview with you, and I, I'm going to say again, thank you very much as a retired professional for coming forward to say that you'd come on. Well, it, it's recorded, but we'll say come on live with me today and talk about these things. Before, you, before we let you go, and I often ask this, what would you like to say as a general comment to medically qualified people out there, retired professionals? What would you like to say to them to try and get them to engage? Well, just just look at the figures. Go on the these; they're not hard to find. Go on the databases, but it doesn't seem to make any difference, Brian. You present somebody with figures, and they they seem to be blind, deaf, and deaf to them. But I, it hasn't stopped me trying. I talk to anybody and everybody now. I will even talk to people in the supermarket if they're they're standing next to me and they say hello and things like that. I, you know, which I've never done in, in my life before. And I'll see if I can get the conversation onto it. And uh, I've had some very interesting conversations. You know, most people are very decent. They've been tricked. Yeah. It's that simple. They've been tricked. I think even the GPs to some extent have been tricked, but they should have known better. They should have been more, more analytical. They should have looked at the figures and thought, hang on, 
What's this about a vaccine in four months or two months or six months or 100 days now? What's this? That, that can't be right. I better look into it. And not knowing what you're injecting into somebody or you're telling your nurse to inject into somebody, I mean, it's just, it's, it's beyond the pale for me. It's and, you know, it's the people doing the injections. It's awful. It's awful. Okay. Well, Greg, I'm going to say thank again, thank you very, very much for, for joining me today. My pleasure. I hope you're going to stay in contact with us and, and I'd, I'd love to, to do some more because we've covered quite a, quite a number of subject areas and we could have gone into some more detail, which I think would have been fascinating for, for the audience. And my final comment to the audience is uh, this is not about me sitting here and speaking. It, it's what Greg as a professional has got to tell you. And we just hope that our audience will pick up, share this information and, of course, talk to family, friends and other members of the public to spread the word that something very, very wrong is happening around COVID-19 and vaccinations. And above all, we need to protect the children. So, Greg, yes. thank you very much for joining me. It's my pleasure.